Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 33. Nowhere to go but up. Ascent narratives in Plato. On the Schwepp, we've been in the archaic and classical thought worlds for some time now. One of the interesting things about these thought worlds, which seem to differentiate them quite radically from more recent currents of thought, and especially from more recent ideas about seeking privileged, special wisdom, inaccessible to most folks, is that for the ancients, if you wanted supernatural wisdom, you went down. Specifically, the place to go was the underworld, the place where the dead dwell after their mortal phase on earth has ended. For wisdom, you want a katabasis, a trip downward, echoes of which term we saw in the first words of Plato's middle dialogue, The Republic, I went down, kateben. We've talked about other worlds on this podcast, places which are not the same as the everyday world of waking life, but which are conceived of as different too from the world of dreams, though you can sometimes go to other worlds in special dreams. The other world is a place which has its own rules, but which is in the final analysis real, not just imaginary. Differently real to be sure, but real all the same. Now the underworld was the archaic and classical other world par excellence, at least among the Greeks and Romans. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus, when he needs information to continue his journey homeward to Ithaca, goes down to the underworld, Hades, and questions the dead people there. We saw in our episode on ancient magic and necromancy that you didn't have to go to such lengths to talk to the dead. They could be conjured up here on earth by specialist practitioners bringing news from Hades. And the dead know things that we don't because they're dead and they dwell in the other world. In our discussion of the phenomena generally talked about under the rubric of Orphism or Orphic beliefs, we saw that some among the classical Greeks had definite ideas about what the other world was like and how to navigate it for a better outcome. There's a fork in the path in the underworld and you need to make sure you take the right fork to avoid a rather dismal fate after death. That's right as in correct, not right as in right and left. The information as to which of the two paths, the right or the left was better, has not survived from antiquity. Turning to philosophy proper, we saw in our discussion of Parmenides that the philosopher can travel to this underworld and gain true knowledge of the metaphysical nature of reality. Of course, it may be that Parmenides' journey is not to the underworld. Our remaining fragments leave just enough ambiguity to have prompted eternal debate on this question, but I find the underworld hypothesis convincing. And anyway, even if Parmenides' journey is to some other other world, it's another world which has poetic echoes of the Hesiodic underworld, as in the Gates, for example. Virgil's Aeneid, which is a Roman epic poem and propaganda piece of the late first century CE, synthesizes much of this earlier tradition in Book 6, where Aeneas, like Odysseus, must go to Hades to question the dead. Here we find the fork in the road, we find philosophical metaphysics, we find a theory of reincarnation for certain special individuals, and many other themes which bear the stamp both of mystery religion, of an Orphic or Bacchic flavor perhaps, and of the literate post-Platonic philosophical reflection of the Augustan age. But Virgil was no longer living in the same thought world as Homer, Parmenides, or the Orphic authors. Something had changed. Now, what I'm about to say will probably not come as a surprise in the context of this podcast. 
It all changes with Plato. Plato uses, in several of the dialogues, a motif of philosophical ascent. Indeed, the accounts of philosophic ascent in Greek, anagoge, is the term which later becomes standard, but Plato himself uses a whole range of terms for this ascent in different contexts. The journey of the soul toward higher levels of reality are among the most important passages in Plato. These may be divided into two types for the purpose of discussion. In some, the journey is presented as an inward one, whereby the philosopher's understanding is gradually refined to comprehend more fundamental realities. The allegory of the cave in the Republic is the best known example of this, but as we shall see in this episode, the symposium gives it a run for its money in terms of radical epistemology transcending normal modes of thought. In other cases, an ascent of the soul through the physical cosmos is described. We see this in the Phaedrus, to be discussed shortly in this episode, and in Book 10 of the Republic and the myth of Ur, which as we saw in an earlier episode, <laughs> plays with ascent and descent imagery at the same time, being an account of a catabasis followed by a cosmic vision of the heavenly spheres, and lastly a reascent to the world of the living. In this episode, we shall be discussing two important works of Plato, the Symposium and the Phaedrus, mainly for the light they cast on Plato's ideas about philosophic ascent and the kinds of esoteric knowledge one might acquire thereby. Having done this, we'll take a step back and look at the modes of transmission of this Platonic theme into Western culture more generally, and Hellenistic religious currents in particular, and then discuss its fundamental importance for Western esotericism. Let's start with Phaedrus. This is a beautiful dialogue. Socrates and Phaedrus, a young student of rhetoric, are whiling away the hot noonday hours sitting beneath a plane tree, and Socrates delivers several speeches, or logoi, at Phaedrus's insistence. So, having delivered a humorous speech, which is probably a mockery of the professional orators which Phaedrus admires, Socrates suddenly seems to get serious, or semi-serious, declaring that his daimonion has forbidden him to leave that place until he has given a true logos. Socrates's daimonion, his little godling, of course, is the voice in his head, which was introduced in the very first dialogue of Plato, the Apology. This voice warns Socrates from time to time not to do things. Now, the reference to the daimonion here is apposite, because Socrates is about to embark on a multifaceted logos which does several things, but most of all praises a kind of divine wisdom, or even divine madness, over normal, what we might call rationalistic, knowledge. Moving on from his mention of the daimonion's commandment, Socrates begins his second, arguably more serious, logos with the remark, I am a seer, though not a serious one. Still, good enough for my own purposes, as the bad writers say. The word for seer here is mantis, which you might also translate as diviner. He practices mantea, the art of divination, which is the root term for all the mancies that listeners will be familiar with. Necromancy, rhabdomancy, cartomancy, geomancy, etc., etc. Ways of divination, techniques for divination. He then jokes around in serious fashion with Phaedrus for a while, and then gets down to the famous encomium of madness at 244b. Here Socrates praises mania, which, he makes clear, is not simply a derangement of the rational faculties as it might be regarded today. In mania, the rational faculties are taken over by a god. Prophets and inspired seers such as the Pythia at Delphi 
are not themselves wise per se. They're speaking with a wisdom that comes to them from outside themselves, from divine source. The ancients, Socrates tells us, when they invented words, called the art of divination mania, but someone along the way inserted a T, thus giving mantea. Thus, when Socrates earlier called himself a mantis, a seer, he was, by the theory he's outlining here, calling himself a possessed, inspired person whose wisdom comes from the gods, but also playing with the idea that he's just mad. Remember in the allegory of the cave in the Republic, the man who's ascended out of the cave and comes back to try to free his fellow inmates, because he's seen what reality is really like, will inevitably be regarded as a madman. And they will kill him, which is what happened to Socrates, historically. So Plato is playing with a number of themes here. We then move on to a proof of the soul's immortality, based on its quality of being self-moving. Suddenly we're in the territory of stripped-down dialectic. Socrates concludes that we can say that the soul is immortal, but what else, he asks, can we say about it? To answer this, Socrates launches into one of Plato's greatest myths, which is perhaps the most classic account of cosmic ascent in the Western world. The soul, it turns out, can be compared to a chariot yoked to two winged horses, one of which is reliable and good, and the other of which is unruly and hard to manage. The steady horse wants to go upward. The unruly one is attracted to things on earth and pulls down. Now we should note here right off the bat that all of this up and down imagery is second nature to us as moderns. Of course, one in search of wisdom wants to go upward metaphorically, just as someone with base appetites or what have you is looking down metaphorically. In Christianity, down is where the devil lives and up is where you find God. That's why they call it heaven, which let us not forget is just another word for sky. But we don't find this metaphysical tendency upward before Plato, at least I haven't found it. And even if we do, in various different contexts, find aspects of valorization of the up, we don't find it in the thoroughgoing way in which Plato puts things. From Plato onward, the Western tradition would pretty much universally associate upwardness with goodness and wisdom, and downwardness with evil and baseness. And although the point isn't provable because of the vastness of the cultural canvas we're talking about here, I think it's likely that Plato is responsible for this inner orientation up that we all seem to have nowadays. So let's get back to the chariot of the soul after that little digression. Humans have contrary impulses within them, one urging toward earthly and bodily things and one toward the heavens represented by these two winged horses yoked to the chariot. Now things get cosmic. In the ascent toward wisdom, the winged soul, because the chariot imagery in this myth sort of fades in and out. Sometimes Socrates speaks of horses, and at other times he just talks of souls, winged souls. So we should think of the chariot and the winged horses, and presumably the driver of the chariot, all as representing the soul. The winged soul ascends upwards and encounters the revolving heavens. This is probably meant to be the sphere of the fixed stars, but there isn't much cosmological detail in this myth, unlike the Timaeus that we discussed in an earlier episode. Whatever this sphere is, at any rate, it revolves, and the souls revolve along with it. But some special souls, whose wings are up to the task, are actually able to stick their heads through this sphere and look outside the cosmos, and they see something amazing. 
Some, in fact, some special few souls, those who are called immortal, are able to penetrate the outer sphere entirely and stand upon its outer surface. There they're carried around by the revolution of the sphere, and the whole time they behold the things outside of heaven, exo tu uranu. This, it turns out, is the world of forms. It is colorless, without shapes, it's intangible, but it's utterly, breathtakingly beautiful. Here, the divine beings, and it's a bit of an open question whether these are the divine souls of humans or the gods, and whether there's a difference in Plato's mind. Here, these divine beings spend a whole revolution of the heavens in contemplation, and when they've reached the same point in the heavenly cycle, where they first penetrated the outer rim of the cosmos, they descend again and give their horses some nectar and ambrosia. Now, there's a lot more going on in this myth than we've outlined here, but we've hopefully covered the essentials for our purposes of getting at the cosmic ascent theme. We might ask Plato at this point, okay, Plato, we've seen in the Timaeus that you're very interested in astronomy and that you think there are rings in the sky with planets stuck on them. In the myth of Ur, you gave a similar cosmology, but there you used nested spheres instead of rings. They were actually half spheres, but that's because you were giving us a kind of cutaway image of the cosmos. So here you seem to be following the sphere model. Great. But surely you don't mean that the soul actually needs to fly up into the sky to get to the world of forms and true being. I mean, this is a powerful metaphor, right? Not some kind of primitive soul flight mapped onto an only slightly less primitive astronomical theory, right? Right? Well, one of the beauties of studying Plato is that if someone says they can answer a question like this with certainty, you know they are full of it. I'm happy to sidestep the question. Plato is clearly playing with astronomical ideas here, and I should mention that this myth goes on to describe an elaborate system of reincarnation of souls according to celestial motions, something we've seen in the myth of Ur as well, so that the cosmos is like a big soul clock, and the souls of individuals dip in and out of incarnations according to fixed periods of 10,000 years. And Plato is also clearly working with the up-down metaphor of wisdom, true knowledge, and true being, which we saw in the Republic. So up is more wise and more pure, and down is the opposite. But what he actually means is anyone's guess, in terms of how literally or otherwise we're meant to take this myth. This dialogue, the Phaedrus, has more jokes and wry comments from Socrates than most, and the tone of the whole is very light-hearted, so we have to keep that in mind, although we should also keep in mind that this light-heartedness never precludes Plato from having a serious philosophical intent. But the crucial point which we can make for our purposes, and this is a very important point, gentle listener, so mark me well here, many, many thinkers from Plato's time onward in the Western esoteric traditions read this passage and understood the celestial cosmos as though this were a literal description of how things are. Souls, when they move toward the world of forms, the true knowledge, or in the Christian thought world, when they go to heaven, which is the sky, remember, these souls must quite literally pass upward through the geocentric cosmos, passing all the planets, passing the fixed stars, and so on and so forth. Everyone seems to have forgotten about this crucial fact nowadays, including most historians of philosophy who work on Plato and later Platonism, but it's a fact, all right, and the Schwepp will be exploring its ramifications in detail 
in many an upcoming episode. So in the Phaedrus, we have an important myth involving epistemology, the acquisition of real knowledge, certain knowledge, and even wisdom. And it's mapped onto a model of the cosmos. We can put that together with the Timaeus cosmic myth, which also has echoes of epistemology and theory of the soul. Remember, the craftsman god of the Timaeus, when he makes the cosmos, makes it from soul, like a tailor cutting up cloth. So the whole thing is made of soul. With this in mind, we can maybe see why the idea that souls would reincarnate according to the celestial movements might make sense. The heavens are a sort of macro soul already, and they have complex inner workings, which are the planets and the revolutions and so on and so forth. And the souls of individuals, I won't say individual humans here because Plato has made it clear in Phaedrus and in the Phaedo and elsewhere that the souls can take on animal and plant forms in their peregrinations, but the souls of individuals can be seen as microcosmic parts of this inner working of the totality of the cosmic soul. We can add to this the myth of Ur and put all of these accounts into a box labeled Ascent cosmic. Here we find accounts of epistemology, theory of soul, and astronomy mixed up together in various degrees. Now let's turn to our accounts of what might be called inner ascent, where Plato gives us the epistemology without the planets and stars. We've seen this kind of ascent in the allegory of the cave in the Republic. We certainly have an ascent in this account, but it's an ascent out of the earth and into the clear light of day reinforced by the earlier metaphor of the sun of the good. The divided line passage of the Republic gave us more to go on in, the, in a schema, but has less movement in it, but definitely still incorporates the idea of progression, starting with the lowest forms of knowledge at the bottom and going up to the highest transcendent form at the top. In all of these accounts, the top of the epistemological ladder, the type of knowing or cognition or whatever we want to call it, is no longer something which Socrates feels he can just put into words plainly. Socrates, will recall, kept saying in the Republic that he would do his best to describe what he meant, but he would probably fail. In the Phaedrus, Socrates's encomium of divine madness may well be in part a play on this theme. This is a kind of knowledge which transcends the normal way of cognition, coming as it does from the gods in this case. We turn now to another of Plato's classic Ascent accounts, this time the mysteries of Diotima from the dialogue, the Symposium. This is the classic exemplar of the inner or purely epistemological ascent. Although with Plato, you can never have pure epistemology without involving ontology, but that's one for the philosophy nerds. The Symposium, by way of contrast to the Phaedrus, has a large cast of characters all gathered together at a drinking party, a symposium. The Greeks were really into these drinking parties, and they seem to have been slightly more cultured affairs than your night out at the pub. The celebrants are garlanded, the whole affair is dedicated to the gods with libations, and at least in Plato's account, one of the drinkers is elected as the drinking ruler, the, the chairman of the meeting, who dictates the theme for discussion. In our symposium, this chairman of the piss-up is our friend Phaedrus interestingly, and the subject chosen for discussion is eros, sexual or erotic love in English, the burning passion kind of love. And each of the celebrants in turn gives an encomium to this mighty power, which the Greeks regularly personified as a god, the god Eros, usually seen as the son of Aphrodite, whom you might know by his Roman name Cupid. 
It becomes very clear very quickly, however, that we are not dealing with a cute, chubby baby with a bow and arrow in this case. We're dealing with the foundations of epistemology and the passion that the philosopher has for the beauty of reality itself. And by this, we really mean passion. The same passion, only to a much greater degree, that lovers have for their beloveds. The context, of course, is homosexual love between older men and younger men, or perhaps older boys. The ideal seems to have been youths with the first faintest beginnings of a beard starting to show. So this is the kind of standard love relationship that Plato takes as his model, which seems to have been a very popular one in many of the Greek cities. The final scene of the dialogue, the symposium, in which the handsome young Alcibiades tells how he tried unsuccessfully to seduce Socrates in an all-night cuddle fest, follows this model. Alcibiades is young, he's, a, he's just a, a gorgeous teenager, basically, or a bit older, while Socrates is an older man. But this episode breaks the model when we find that Socrates just wasn't interested in physical intercourse. This passage is the origin of the term platonic love, nowadays devalued and discussed in terms of platonic relationships. But Socrates in this passage isn't just trying to let Alcibiades down easy, as in, I really love you Alcibiades, but let's have a platonic relationship. He's using Alcibiades' beauty, which he genuinely feels, as fuel to propel his soul to the ultimate ground of beauty from which all physical beauties stem. So, that's platonic love. Let's get to what Socrates says. As we mentioned, there have been a number of speeches in this dialogue all about love, and the symposium has progressed. All of the speeches are fascinating in their own right, and they all contribute to Plato's overarching philosophical purpose, but we're going to have to limit ourselves to Socrates here. But I highly recommend that listeners go to the text in the original or in a good translation and read it for themselves. They will discover delights untold, such as the speech of Aristophanes. Yes, that is the comic poet Aristophanes, who had satirized Socrates in his play The Clouds, so Plato is quite rightly getting his own back at him. In Aristophanes' myth, Zeus created humans as spherical creatures with two faces and four arms and four legs. So basically, if you imagine two people, a man and a woman, sort of fused together into a double creature joined at the back. And this was our original state, and so when we were separated by divine decree, we were left with an indwelling sense of incompleteness, which accounts for sexual desire. We're trying to become whole again by linking our bodies with other people's bodies. But Socrates... Socrates basically turns the whole discussion of love onto its head. Love, he says, is not a positive godlike thing, it's not even a god, but it is the consciousness of some lack. And this is true, if you think about it. We do not long for what we have, but for what we don't have. If I've eaten, I'm not longing for food anymore. If I'm strong, I do not long for strength. If anything, I would desire to continue being strong, but this, says Socrates, is not the same thing as longing for strength. But then Socrates does one of his interesting changes of tack. Having reasoned with his interlocutor Agathon for some time, Socrates concludes, and Agathon agrees, that love is the lack of what is beautiful. And since what is beautiful is also what is good, the two concepts being closely intertwined in Greek thought, and especially in Plato, the lover is also lacking what is good, which is not a good state to be in. Then he says that he's done with his speech, but is going to tell them something else. 
He was instructed long ago, says Socrates, in the ways of love by a woman, a certain Diotima of Mantinea. Now, Diotima is, as far as we know, another platonic creation, but quite an exceptional one. For one thing, she's a woman, which, as we've seen in earlier episodes on Plato, makes her an unusual source of instructions for the Greeks, who tended toward blatant disregard of most women, but which is wholly in line with Socrates' comments in the Republic to the effect that women and men are basically equal, ceteris paribus. The introduction of a female character at the climax of a dialogue about homosexual love among men is also intriguing. For another thing, Diotima is a powerful prophetess or some kind of religious specialist. Socrates tells us that she was once able to delay a plague at Athens for ten years by telling the Athenians which sacrifices to make. So she knows powerful rituals. And although she's simply referred to as a woman, her knowledge of ritual practice and the name of her hometown, Mantinea, are probably intended to evoke echoes of the term mantis, which we saw in the Phaedrus, and perhaps even the divine mania, which according to Socrates in that dialogue is the same thing as mantea. At any rate, this Diotima is a lady to be reckoned with, and this mysterious lady long ago took Socrates to school on the subject of love, subjecting him to the kind of grueling cross-examination which he himself is famous for inflicting on his fellow Athenians. And the culmination of this instruction she gives to him is described as an initiation into love, into eros. We shall have to save discussion of the initiatory and mystic elements in the symposium for the next episode, and concentrate here on Diotima's outline of the erotic anagoge, or ascent. But this is what she teaches in a nutshell. Love is not a god, nor a mortal, but something between the two, a mediating entity. Love is a daimon. The daimon, and we've encountered Socrates' daimonion already in this episode, that's a little daimon. A daimon is a lesser god, or perhaps a spirit, as some people translate it. Daimones, Diotima tells Socrates, are the ones who carry messages and such like back and forth between gods and men. And by doing so, they enable the gods to preserve their perfection and yet still have a kind of contact with the human world giving us, in a basic way, the kind of graded continuum of realities which would come to be a basic assumption of later Platonism and much of Western esoteric thought. The idea that although God is transcendent, there is a, a shading or graded continuity, a structured hierarchy between God and the human world which connects them. So Eros is neither a god nor a mortal but a great daimon, after hearing something about Eros's parentage in a wonderful myth within a myth, we learn several more things from Diotima. We learn that love is a philosopher because wisdom is a good, of course, and love wants good things. So love of wisdom, that's philosophia in Greek, is one branch of love. So philosophers are lovers. Love's primary desire is to have the good forever. This would imply that love needs immortality to cover the forever part. Hence, mortal animals reproduce, which is the closest thing to immortality that they can achieve as mortals. So that's Diotima's account of sexual reproduction and how it stems from love and how it relates to love. 
it's an attempt to become immortal because at its most fundamental level, love wants the good forever. But Diotima plays with this theme of pregnancy and birth in a really interesting way, especially as the sexual relationship she goes on to discuss are male-male. Love's function is giving birth to beauty both in body and mind, she tells us. So men, it turns out, can be pregnant. Pregnant with virtues, pregnant with wise discourses, pregnant with beauty itself. And like all pregnant people, they wish to give birth. And this giving birth to beautiful things, and not mere mortal children, seems to be the highest calling of human passion, as Diotima understands it. Or perhaps the second highest. Diotima then gets to the method of her madness, and this is where we see the ascent part. First, in a kind of idealized life cycle of a human being, a young man will fall in love in the normal sense. He will love one particular body, and this presumably will be an older man who has virtues and perhaps physical beauty and other things which naturally attract the young man to him. But at some point, if he has any sense, the young man will come to realize that all beautiful bodies are lovable and will cease to be besotted with one particular lover. At this stage, he's beginning to mature, but soon he gravitates more toward beautiful minds than to beautiful bodies. This presumably explains how the notoriously ugly Socrates became such a sex symbol in Athens. Although Diotima doesn't actually say this, that's just a side note from me. But from loving the beauty of exquisite minds, one will then abstract even further to a love of the knowledge that minds bring forth, the love of logoi, of beautiful systems of thought, of truths. And finally, the lover will ascend to the highest type of love, love for the beauty itself, the pure, unchanging form of beauty, without which nothing that is beautiful could be beautiful. As always, Plato values the most fundamental realities over the particulars that he sees as participating in them. So, of course, beauty itself is worth more than a bunch of beautiful men. But the descriptions he tries to bring about to this ultimate ground of beauty evoke a transcendent beauty, which is not simply greater in degree, but greater in kind from any individual beautiful thing. And as always, here the descriptions of the ultimate achievement of this highest form of epistemology. For we are discussing a kind of contemplative epistemological search for greater and greater beauties, which left off being physical right back at the beginning. So we are dealing somehow with cognitive phenomena here. This highest form of epistemology is described in baffling and troubling terms. It is itself an initiation. And Diotima tells us that Socrates is probably not ready to be initiated yet. As with the sun, the cave, and the line in the Republic, we have ascended a ladder of ways of knowing, only to encounter something higher than any way of knowing, but which is itself no longer a way of knowing in the usual sense. Cue late Platonist mysticism and many other esoteric approaches to higher knowledge. But speaking of mysticism, we will return to the mystic aspects of Diotima's speech in the next episode, which will deal with the important topic of Plato's use of mystic imagery, through which he once again transformed Western thought for all time. For now, though, we have to stick to the ascent, or rather, we must descend once again to the phenomenal world, where things can be discussed in normal language, 
and we must give birth to the logos with which we have been pregnant this whole time, namely our discussion of both the transmission of the platonic trope of ascent into Western thought and its significance for Western esotericism. In the cases of both of these themes, there's still a lot of work to be done from the point of view of scholarship, but we here at the Schwepp are up to trying it on. The podcast will be looking very deeply at the theme of ascent as we progress, but here's a little provisional report to get things started. First of all, transmission. As we've seen, we can put Plato's ascent accounts into two boxes, one marked ascent cosmic and the other marked ascent epistemological. Now it's by no means clear that these are meant to be two different types of ascent in Plato, and it is completely clear that the later Platonists of antiquity, people like Plotinus and many others that we've talked about already, and many people in the Western esoteric traditions later on, saw these two different types of ascent as one and the same, at least until we get to the later Middle Ages, a topic we'll return to in a moment. But we can, for convenience, separate them now into these two boxes. I just like the idea of boxes labeled Ascent Cosmic and Ascent Epistemological. In the Symposium, at any rate, while we do have the soul ascending a kind of scale of realities and encountering progressively finer and more pure and more real beings as it goes, we don't have anything about circling around among the heavenly bodies or sitting on the sphere of the fixed stars or any planets or anything like that. Although it would seem that the form of the beautiful itself and the forms viewed by the ascending soul in the Phaedrus should probably be in the same other world. So is this other world inside us? Is it outside the cosmos? Maybe it's both, gentle listener. But we will explore that in time. First of all, for now, a few further words on the cosmic side of this ascent topos. Plato wrote in the 5th century BCE. For those of you who aren't classical specialists, we'll just do a little bit of orienting. You will probably have heard of Alexander the Great. Now, this guy lived in the 4th century BCE and conquered a huge swathe of the Near East, even penetrating as far as Afghanistan, and to the south, conquered Egypt. And he established a Greek-speaking ruling elite, which, after he died, carved up this big macro-empire he'd created into several competing realms, which are known as the Hellenistic Kingdoms. Good. So far. These lasted until they're swallowed up by Rome in the west and by a new resurgent Persian Empire in the east. So this interim period between Alexander and the later defeat of the Hellenistic kingdoms is generally known as the Hellenistic period. And it saw major shifts in everything from religious thought to political theory. It saw great scientific progress among the Greeks and most of all, widespread cultural exchange on a vastly increased scale. Now, in the history of religions, the specialist Jonathan Z. Smith, or Jonathan Z. Smith for American listeners, popularized the term Hellenistic religions to talk about the new movements arising during this period. And cosmic ascent, interestingly, is at the center of Hellenistic religious movements. Smith calls the widespread preoccupation with cosmic ascent in the post-Platonic period, quote, the fundamental pattern of Hellenistic Mediterranean religions. Emphasis his. And another scholar has called it a characteristic expression of Hellenistic piety. We see this preoccupation in the Jewish texts known as Hechelot mystical writings, which we'll feature in the podcast, and have a whole fascinating vocabulary of ascent and descent, typical of the genre. We can also look at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians from the New Testament, which describes 
an ascent, whether in body or soul, is unknown, to the third heaven. We'll be spending a lot of time on Gnostic ascent accounts in coming episodes as well. These feature a cosmos populated by a whole range of sometimes hostile deities and daimones who want to stop the Gnostic adept from escaping from the cosmos and reaching the divine realm beyond. Not unlike Plato's divine realm of forms beyond the outermost sphere of the stars. We find a wonderful ascent account in the hermetic writing called Poimandres, which we shall discuss in a later episode. We can also cite the Islamic story of the Mi'raj, the journey of the Prophet Muhammad, prayer and peace be upon him, through the different layers of the heavenly realm, where he encounters various previous prophets and sort of hobnobs with them, and finally ascends to within a bowshot of the divine presence itself. So the ascent motif, the cosmic ascent motif, becomes widespread in the centuries following Plato, and even the ascent motif combining cosmic and epistemological elements becomes widespread. Perfect wisdom or a transcendent wisdom beyond wisdom being reached upon the souls, having literally attained to a great cosmic height, or having left the cosmos altogether. But is this because of Plato's ascent accounts? Here we have to shrug our shoulders. As in many cases, the influence of Plato is so profound on the thought world of the West that we are often Platonistic without even realizing we are. As with the question of the whole up-and-down orientation that we alluded to earlier, we simply cannot document that this ascent motif arises when it does and as pervasively it does simply because Plato wrote about it. Indeed, Plato may have been, and probably was, adapting already existing elements both of astronomical thought, on the one hand, and of religious tropes, on the other, in creating his myths. But we can say that the distinctive Platonic statements of the Ascent accounts that we've seen had an enormous and profound effect on the West, and particularly on Western esoteric currents. Turning back to the other side of the cosmic ascent, the epistemological ascent, in later Platonism, we see that these two kinds of account are fused into a single concept of ascent, which is both cosmic and interior at the same time, and which is often framed as the ultimate achievement, the goal toward which all philosophic effort tends. In the Platonists, and that means, as we shall see, in esoteric medieval Jewish, Christian, and Islamic thought as well, because they drew on the Platonists, the journey through the cosmic spheres and the journey toward God are one and the same thing. But we have a long way to go, historically, before we get there. It would be nice, however, to give some idea here of just how influential this idea of the ascent of the soul was in our history. There's a family of fascinating texts arising in the 14th century in England, and written in English uh, rather than Latin, which was something of a novelty at the time for works of this sort. These are a group of related texts which are classics of what is generally known as mysticism, and they're usually referred to under the title of the Cloud of Unknowing. Now, the Cloud of Unknowing is a deeply apophatic, deeply paradoxical work describing the yearning of the human soul for God, and God's presence is described as a kind of ultimate absence. It's very, very mind-bending stuff and very fascinating. But the reason I bring it up in this context is that the cloud of unknowing arises sometime in the middle of the 14th century, probably. 
and the cloud of unknowing, in its discussion of the ascent of the soul toward God, cautions the reader that you are not to think of this as a physical ascent through the cosmos, even though that's what most people think. So we're looking at here a kind of possible terminus ad quem for the idea of it just being assumed that the ascent of the soul through intellectual realms of knowledge might somehow be related to or even the same thing as the ascent of the soul through the actual physical cosmos. Um, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing finds it necessary to warn you against that interpretation. He says we're talking about something inward, and so we can assume from this one piece of evidence, I think, that there is a robust tradition even in the 14th century in England of people who think of this ascent as something very much outward as well as perhaps inward. Now, on that note, gazing toward the future, we will leave this episode, but join us next time for a discussion of another very, very important side to both the Phaedrus and the Symposium, and to Plato's work more generally, the Platonic use and perhaps abuse of the mystery cults. And until then, try to imitate the exact nature of the vision of the beautiful itself, and stay esoteric.